Cool. Thank you. Um, my name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive reader. And I'm grateful to be here. Thank you, Kathy, for inviting me to come and share. I really appreciate it. And uh, I didn't know the meeting had moved to this venue, so I'm glad that you happened to mention that at one point because I would have been, you know, on Burton Way, wondering why it was so easy to park. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's really good to be here. And this is only my second live OA meeting. And it's my, I'm in other, other, Fellowships. You know, I work one program, but I'm in a few different fellowships, and um, so it's only like my fourth or fifth live meeting, and um, it's good. It's good to be here. It's good to be out, and I love Overeaters Anonymous. I got to tell you, just get ready, and and I love it, and I feel um, it's really important to um, to use my voice and share what I think is really important and what I want to make sure stays very, very safe in Overeaters Anonymous. But uh, I'll just give you a little thumbnail in terms of my story. So I had a problem, hellacious problem with sugar from when I was very young. I have a filling of just about every molar in my mouth. And I was molested by two different men and on numerous occasions. And I was the youngest of five children. My mother was dealt with serious mental health issues. I was probably an unplanned pregnancy. My siblings were all much closer in age. So this means I was spending the bulk of my time with this woman who was so troubled. And um, that was largely a result of her coming from an alcoholic family. Both my parents were from alcoholic families. So I grew up in an alcoholic household. But again, my parents weren't alcoholics, but my fathers were. And my mother's alcoholic father was horrendously violent. He wasn't even just a child beater, he was a beater upper. So my mother was just a wounded bird. And I have every confidence if you're a boy and you're getting clocked by your father with a closed fist, it's a shit show. Oops, I'm in a church, I probably shouldn't say that. Um, it's not good. But, um, but if you're a girl, it just might be an eyelash worse. And um, again, she just never got past that. So. That's the pathology, right? That's the insanity. Just in case I think that my problem is tortilla chips or it was being a size 18, whatever my top size was. My top weight's 200 pounds. I weigh about, I lost weight during the pandemic. I'm okay. It's nothing scary. It just, I don't know. But, um, so I'm about 120, 125. I don't know. I don't weigh myself. Doctors weigh me if I go to the office, whatever. But it's, it's the least interesting part of, of my recovery and transformation anyway. <clears throat> I'm glad I don't weigh 200 pounds anymore, but it's not the prize. I didn't know that when I got here, but uh, it's not even close to being the prize. But at any rate, I just grew up in this traumatic background. Shame is a huge part of my story given the sexual trauma. I'm so grateful to Overeaters Anonymous that they had the wisdom put, to put out that book, whatever that book is that deals with body image and you know sexual stuff and you know my story is one of the stories in that book and it, it's such wisdom that we're doing that um, again I'm in the mother program and there are times that I've shared at the when I'm leading meetings and um, you know I in that fellowship it's a, a not unusual I mean you know it's a tradition that people will line up and they thank the speaker and I've had men sob in front of me and tell me that they've never shared it with anybody before. They haven't shared it with their wives. They haven't shared it with their therapists. Well, these are guys who are driving up in Bentleys, you know, 
have all the accoutrement, right, that one can imagine that you have in life that gives you all the options, and they just couldn't let those secrets and things go. And it, it all is a result of being in Overeaters Anonymous that we have the wisdom to bring that up. Because I suspect even in this room, I'm probably not the only one who's dealt with some kind of sexual trauma. And it's a really important thing to talk about that. Because that was all how this fueled the shame and everything, which just made it necessary for me to shut down. Because I don't have a food problem. I have a heart problem. I shut down like that. <clears throat> just ask my husband. And it can happen in a flash. It's wild. And all of a sudden, I'm closed down. I'm cloistering not to the God within, right? Not to the great reality that it talks about in the book. Not to the unsuspected inner resource that it talks about in the spiritual appendix in the back of the book. But I'm shut down and I'm alone. I'm defensive and I'm defended. And I'm unsafe. And all of a sudden, you all get pushed to the side. And I can smile and talk and, you know, and and defer when you ask questions. That's that's the pathology. That's the disease. Again, it's the caboose of the train how it ends up looking on my body. The problem is, is to get access to this. And I get access to this by working the steps. But in terms of how it came in for me, as I started in Al-Anon, was a year in Al-Anon, realized I should probably pay attention to my own drinking, get clean and sober in AA. Three months in, I turned to the woman next to me who was thin, healthy body weight, probably why I asked her. I said, do you think it's possible for people to have a problem with sugar like we have a problem with alcohol? She said, absolutely, go to Overeaters Anonymous. So I did, went to my first meeting. Had I followed the direction I got in that first meeting, which was this loving direction from this woman, at a hospital, Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, Michigan, on Michigan Avenue, just down the street from Michigan State University. I was in the seventh year of my four-year undergraduate degree. Things were going well. And this woman was, um, had just completed her doctorate in accounting. This beautiful African-American woman. And um, she ran the meeting, and an hour after the meeting, you know, it was an 11 a.m. meeting. I didn't know how OA worked. I knew I didn't drink tequila anymore in AA, so I figured, Yes, you don't eat in OA, so I showed up at this meeting not having eaten, and they're talking about abstinence. So afterwards, I asked her, what's the gig with abstinence? And she said, um, do you have a problem food? And I said, sugar, for sure. She said, that's a very common one with a lot of us. Do you think you could just eat three meals today and not have any sugar? I don't know. I'm hoping the conversation went beyond that. Because we wouldn't want to send a newcomer out the door with, oh, you got a problem with sugar? Don't eat sugar. Have three meals. Good luck with that. See you next week. Bye. We <laughs> right? wouldn't, wouldn't ever want to do that. But even if she didn't, because it's really important for me, given my history, as somebody who deals with sexual trauma, I have a natural tendency to play the victim. It just comes very naturally to me. Why? Because I was victimized, right? It wasn't a fair fight. I was 10. He was 50. So it comes very naturally to me. So I have to really pay attention and watch for that so that I, you know, I, I don't get caught up in that. Because, again, that's a tunnel with no cheese. I just don't want to, I don't want to run there. So um, um, I don't know if the conversation went beyond that. But I knew how this worked. Remember, I'd already been in Allen 15 months at that point. I was doing the, the deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I knew that you got a sponsor and you worked the steps. I know here that if you come here, you're going to feel better. If you work the steps, you're going to get better. I know how this works. So it doesn't matter where the conversation went. I know I never saw her again. You know, again, she'd finished her education. Maybe she's, you know, booked out of town. But um, I remember leaving that because she, once she found out I hadn't eaten, because now it's almost 1 o'clock, she said, go eat. And... Um, so I go to a restaurant, order a meal, and they set it down in front of me, and it just felt so unusual, right? That all of a sudden, it really felt like, it, I've never said this before, and I've shared this story many times. It really felt like it was the first time in my life I was eating. Because it was a healthy meal, and it was, it was, it was guilt-free. Because somebody said that I needed to feed myself. I've never really thought of that. Anyway... I ate that meal. I went out and I sat in my car. I thought, huh, three meals a day and no sugar. It's got to be more complicated than that. And that was my last guilt-free meal for a long, long time. Because I just proceeded to muck it up. Right? And all that means is that I wasn't ready to feel the feelings. That's all it means. It wasn't a moral issue. I didn't know that at the time. I thought there was something wrong with me. I'm not supposed to be standing up, am I? No, Is that okay that I'm sitting? Whatever you want. So, um, uh, at any rate, I didn't know that. It's good for me to stand. It's good for my back. Um, I didn't know that that it was um, that it wasn't a moral issue. No, I'm not standing. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> um, I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought there was something wrong with me because I, I wasn't ready to feel the feelings and I couldn't do this. But there wasn't. There wasn't, but I didn't know that. I was really, really lucky, though, because I landed a gem of a sponsor. And I, I got a woman within a couple of weeks, and it became very, very clear that I wasn't ready to stop doing quantity eating, and I wasn't ready to stop eating the sugar. And I wasn't going to lie about my food. That's one bullet I managed to dodge here. I just don't, I'm not going to lie about my food. If I'm going to lie about something, I'm going to tell you that I'm Julia Roberts' cousin. I've done that. <laughs> I'm going to tell you I went to Harvard Medical School, but I prefer to work at the Gap. Um, I'm going to tell you something. Any, that's nice. Thank you. That's really good. I'm going to put it under my... Oh, that's real good. Man, shoot. Wow, that's real good. Man, that is so good. Thank you. Somebody just gave me a nice cushion for those of you who are at the Audible. Um, I'm going to lie about something else because I feel inadequate. Dishonesty is one of my character defects, right? And, I, you know, I don't really lie so much anymore. But um, I'll sometimes jerk my husband's chain a little bit. But, um, but I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. Because you see, you feel safe now. But um, I thought there was something wrong because I, I just kept eating. I kept eating. And it was really wonderful that she made it safe for me to tell her what I honestly ate. And that's what I do with everybody that I sponsor. I'm not here to help somebody lose weight. I don't have that power. Right? I believe the A, B, and C that we just heard at the end of how it works. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. 
B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. It's not about the sponsor. It's not to see that God couldn't, would if he were sought. So I believe that. But So what I do with people is I make it really safe for them to just be honest with what you've eaten. You don't need to lie about your food. You're safe here. I really want Overeaters Anonymous to always be safe. For the person who's sitting in the back of the room and it feels like they have not been invited to the party. I know that feeling. I know it well. I want it to be safe. I don't have a horse in the race regarding what somebody weighs, what they eat, how long they've been abstinent, if they're still overweight, whether they're throwing up, whether they're starving. I don't have a horse in the race. I don't. But I do have a very very significant horse in the race regarding whether or not people feel safe and loved here. That is very, very important to me to make sure that Overeaters Anonymous stays safe. Right? So at any rate, this sponsor made it safe for me so I could, you know, be, be straight with her about my food. And uh, my father was very shaming about, uh, he had three overweight daughters and didn't like it and I was the youngest and got the worst of it. And um, again, remember, I was dealing with that, that shame from that sexual trauma, and I never told anybody about that until I got sober and, and started in therapy when I got in 12-step room. So I was holding on to that gem for a long time, right? And on top of it, I'm having the man who should have been communicating to me that I was a little princess, as all little girls are beautiful little princesses, and all boys are princes on steeds. That's a message we all should have gotten. Perhaps we didn't. I know I didn't. And so it just all was stacking up. You with me? So the food wasn't the problem. The food was the solution. The food was making it so I could cope, so that I didn't have to take myself out. I am thoroughly convinced if I didn't eat every bit of chocolate that I ate, if I didn't eat every single bite, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been able to cope with the pain. I just wouldn't have. It's been hard enough to cope with the pain, just, you know, being present in life. You know, what we all just went through and everything and all of it, right? And if you feel deeply, and I tend to feel deeply, and probably a lot of us do. And I think we're, well, I know, we're sensitive people. We talk about that in the book. But, um, but at any rate, so this direction I got from this sponsor once it became clear I wasn't ready to stop doing the, the eating she said just keep working the steps that was a game changer for me because I came in I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 34 years and I have it's either today or Monday I don't know whether my absence date is the 28th or the 30th of May I'll have 22 years so I was a slipper for a dozen years right so um, she said, just just keep working the steps. Now, this didn't make any sense to me because I was an Alcoholics Anonymous and we didn't drink and you worked the steps. But I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. I don't argue with sponsors. The only correct answer to a sponsor is yes. So when she said, just start, keep working the steps, being honest with me about your food, I just followed her lead. And two years later, I weighed 180 pounds because I haven't weighed 200 pounds since February of 88 when I came in 08. It's a direct result of having worked the steps over and over and over because it came from Michigan. We were influenced by the Alcoholics Anonymous and Bob Smith. So you just work the steps over and over again, right? 
read the big book two pages at a, at a time, right? You'll be done with it in about ten and a half months. When you're done, do it again. When you're done, do it again. When you're done, do it again. Right? That was the thing. So I knew that was how it was going to go. So it's two years later. I'm now 26 years old, and I weigh 180 pounds. So I've lost 20 pounds. So something's working with this step business. I'm still not abstinent. Won't be for another 10 years, but something's changing. And I'm at a family event. And I walk by my dad, and there's a lot of people, because he would always make these comments publicly, right? Again, more shame. And um, he said, well, I can see you've lost some weight, but you got a lot more to go. Keep it up. And I turned around, and I said, no more. That's it. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. And I remember looking around, because nobody talked to my dad like that. And I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I was really just meeting fire with fire. It was never appropriate for my dad to be talking about my body in the way that he was, in the hurtful way that he was. Qualifies as, you know, whatever DSM <laughs> volume they're in now, I'm sure John knows. But it, it's, it was inappropriate from the get-go. And my dad never talk to me about my weight again. And a few years later, when I ended up in a treatment center for an eating disorder, right, the, the eating disorder, he apologized. I made him fly across, you know, the country, sit in a room full of a bunch of angry women and a few angry men listening to him, right? Talk about what he did, and he took responsibility and apologized. Now, so I was two years in. I'm still not abstinent. But I've worked the steps, been through them a couple of times, and I can stand up to the bully who created a lot of damage. Now, nobody can tell me that's not recovery. Because I'm not here to debate with anybody about whether you can work the steps in Overeaters Anonymous if you're still eating. How do you argue with somebody's ash? How do you argue with somebody's experience, strength, and hope? Why do you want to argue? Why can't there be room for all of it in Overeaters Anonymous? I think there is. It all works. You want a whammer? I'm a whammer. I weigh and measure most of the time. It works well for me. This way if I show up in doctor's office and they want to know what I eat, it's easier for me. So I don't have some kind of funky X factor. But if you don't want it, if you want to do the intuitive eating, good for you. I wish I could do intuitive eating. My intuition says head to seas. They have a five-pound box. <laughs> Game on. That'll work for a week. I'm serious. If I get through a week. Thank you. So it, it, but, but if it works for you, do it. If it works for you to write, you know, I tell my sponsor what I eat. That's not true. I don't do it all the time. That's not true. I'm supposed to, but I don't, right? And my sponsor, Nanette, never. She says, I don't tell my sponsor what I eat. And I said to her one time, I said, oh, I want to try the vegan thing like you do. Can I see what you eat? She said, no. <laughs> right? So, I mean, do your thing. It all works. Just let it be safe. That's all, that's all that I want. I just want Overeaters Anonymous to be safe for people. So there are lots of things that work here. But that's how I knew that even though I wasn't abstinent. I wasn't at goal weight. I was still obese as a 180-pound person. But I didn't, I didn't hurt so much anymore. 
And I started hurting less and less as time went on and on and on. And there's not time for how I eventually got abstinent, but it happened in just a random way. So the, the quick version, my husband and I had gone out to eat. I'd been off sugar for about six, seven weeks because I would do that. I would go on and off sugar, on and off sugar. You know, you get a certain amount of time off sugar. Those feelings start coming up. He and I are at a restaurant. We've done a late dinner. Again, I've made it through the holidays because this started after Halloween because what nitwit gets, you know, off sugar before Halloween. <laughs> so I've gone through the holidays. I've gone through New Year's. It's January... 13th. Yep, it's January 13th. It's a Tuesday night. We're doing a late dinner, and I have no idea what happened. It's 11 o'clock. Uh, there was a couple making out in the corner. Maybe it was that. Maybe something got triggered. I don't know. But all of a sudden, I decide I'm going to have sugar. And so I said to my husband, I said, let's order a dessert. And my husband says, oh, okay, right? Because he knows the ride we're about to go on. He knows that tornado he talks about in the book. You know, we take everybody with us. And so we order a dessert. It's this fancy thing. They give us each a fork. You know, we're, we're sharing the dessert. Except he's eating twice as much as I am, and I know because I'm counting bites. I'm counting his bites. I'm counting my bites. And the problem is I've now aw- I've woken up the giant. So now i got to get out of this restaurant because I've got to gotta get out of here. It's like, waiter, check, check, right? Let's get out of here. Let's go. We're trucking to the car. My, handle, my hand touches the handle because I know I'm already thinking about the lie I'm going to tell my husband because I need to get more sugar. I need to get it now. It's awake. I need to get it. And I, I, I'm just a liar. I'm, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to tell him I'm on, you know, I got to get tampons and I got to, you know, I'm going to drop him off and here's why I'm going back to get him. And, you know, like, how did this happen? Why can't I send him to get him? He's evolved. He knows to get the ones without the applicator. I mean, he knows how this goes. Why am I doing it? And then it's like, oh, well, I didn't want to tell you. You know, I went to the doctor. You know, there's some cysts. It might be cancer. I don't know. I need to be alone. Let me just go, please. Can you go take it? Like, that's where it was got. That's how it was going to go. That's what happens. And my hand touches the handle of the car. And um, I had a moment of clarity. And I thought, uh-uh, no, if I do this, I'm going to die. I will kill myself. I will take myself out. And I didn't want to do that. And uh, so I didn't do the lying. I didn't do any sugar eating that night. And I woke up the next day, and it was Wednesday the 14th. What I did? I had sugar again. That's the insanity. I see that that's just about my time. And um, But Thursday the 15th. I woke up and I didn't have sugar and it was over, right? And I can have sugar in my absence if I want. And there are times that I have had it. I don't have it anymore. I'm, I'm done. But my sponsor has it sometimes. And I tried it for a while. And it, it just doesn't, it's not my thing. It's not the party. This is the party. This is the party, right? This is it. You're it. And you scare me. Intimacy still scares me. Physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy still scares me. But I'm going to just hold your hand, hold your hand, right? And just walk through it. Just like I was scared when I got here, right? Because I'm showing up differently right now. I'm getting better. Heavy-duty physical therapy. Keep me in your prayers. You're probably praying, people. But we just do that for each other, right? Because it's our vulnerabilities that bind us. Not our strengths. It's the vulnerabilities. 
So I just want to make it safe always for people to share those vulnerabilities. So that's what I got today. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask one, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay, and I'll be restating the questions. Remind me if I forget, which I usually do. Yeah, please. Thank you so much um, for your lead and your story. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how your your um, higher power has shifted and evolved over your years in program? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was raised in the Catholic tradition, and I love Catholicism. I'll always be a Catholic girl, but I'll always be a Buddhist. I'll always be a Sikh. I'll mm-hmm. always be a Jew. I'll always be a lover of nature, right? One God, many paths. And... Um, I really learned that here. I had a lot of fear of God. And uh, it's great. One of my uh, my therapists is a former priest. And he left the priesthood. And he's been you know happily married for a long time. But he's helping me work through a lot of old stuff. And again, it was, you know, the Catholic Church, it's a human institution with divine aspirations. They're going to screw up, and they did. And, and uh, they get forgiven in the same way I want to be forgiven. But I just ended up with a lot of pain. So it was really just a matter of coming here and kind of all the things I talked about, going through the steps over and over in myriad programs. I'd probably done 50 to 64 steps. I just did one, you know, just finished one a couple of months ago and needed every one of them. And um, it, it just felt safe over and over again. So I, in many ways, I feel like I experienced love through you. You know, it was wild. At the beginning of this week, I had a, 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 a snafu with this new dentist that I had. And he, you know, was kind of unkind to me on the phone. You know, I was angry, and he, he was telling me how... He was saying kind of some gremlin unkind stuff, I thought. He was saying, you're hostile, you're hostile. And I thought, you're never coming near my mouth again, right? <laughs> with a drill. And... Um, and at the end of the... And, you know, and I called, and, you know, we made amends, and kissed and made up and stuff. But at the end of the week, I was calling another doctor's office and somebody, you know, she was really unkind. She was angry and said something bratty to me. And I hadn't been bratty at all. And it was so fun to get off the phone and just think, wow, in the same way I felt misunderstood by this dentist, I don't want to misunderstand her. So it was that, you know, that seeing the humanity in people and letting it be wonderful and glorious and sometimes I'm the one who screws up and sometimes you're the one who screws up you know what's that Mark Knopfler song sometimes you're the windshield sometimes you're the bug like it's all true and it's all safe so I think it was in experiencing the safety with people that I started feeling that safety with God and then seeing all the great things where it talks about in the book, you know, the great reality, right? Cloistering to the God within. All of a sudden, the praying on my knees wasn't to, uh, you know, suppl- in supplication to a God in the heavens, but to that God within. You know, that unsuspected inner resource that it talks about. On, you know, what is that page number? My sponsor had pointed this out. This is the best. Yeah, don't miss this. This is five, uh, 567. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. When in doubt, call it love. Like, put love in the steps. 
made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of love as we understood love, praying only for the knowledge of love's will for us and the power of love. Right? Like, it's very, very simple, but it all started with you because I had issues with, with people because I was so afraid, you know? My parents were afraid, a lot of pain. That's a good question. Thank you. Yep. My very first meeting, you handed me your business card. Mm -hmm. You said, call me if you ever need it. I thought that was really sweet, so thank you. How did you deal later on with the molesters with your dad? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you sort of... Yeah, yeah. They were on my, the, let's just stick with that because that's the heavy, you know, the, the big ticket item. So, and, you know, let's call the worst of them Joe, right? And because uh, that was the more egregious stuff. And so both those guys were on my first four step, right? So your four columns. So I resent Joe, blessed me, affects me in all these areas, right? I got affected. Every single area of my life was affected. And then there's that all-important fourth column, right? Where am I selfish, dishonest, and fearful? And it talks about self-seeking, but I just that seems so close to selfish. I just say look for those three. Where am I selfish, dishonest, and fearful? So it's easy to see where you'd be fearful behind something like that happening. But the dishonesty and the selfishness I wasn't sure about. And my sponsor had not had the experience that I had, but she was loving and kind. And again, made it feel safe. The whole process felt safe. Being honest with my food, being honest with my pain. So um, she said, can we talk about this? And I said, absolutely. And she said, um, is there anybody in the world that would be angry at you? That is, could you be showing up on anybody's four-step in the world? And I said, most definitely, yes. I definitely need forgiveness. She said, so if you want to be forgiven, is it dishonest? Not to forgive Joe? I said, I haven't molested anybody. She said, that's not what I asked. Have you ever hurt anybody? And I said, yeah, of course. She said, well, then is it dishonest? And I got it, right? So I got that. Then she said, can we talk about selfishness? And I said, sure. She said, do you feel that because of what happened, you in any way are keeping your gifts, your love from the world? Is the world missing out because of what Joe did to you? I said, most definitely. She said, is that selfish? And I felt like I'd been hit with a bataka. If you've ever been in a treatment center, you know what a bataka is. <laughs> but that's what it felt like, right? Like I got it. So I saw in that fourth column, my part, that my pain was keeping me from being present in the world, and I wasn't forgiving someone, despite the fact I want to be forgiven. And again, it's easy to see the fearful part of it. So it was the, the you know, kind of like that ice that was built up around my house. It started... <laughs> you know, cracking open just a little bit. It was all part of it. That was a huge, that was a huge part, and it happened right from the beginning. I forgave those men right from the beginning. I have not had that kind of drama 
behind that. <clears throat> I've had drama in other places, stuff that's held on, things where I haven't, I've struggled with forgiving somebody despite the fact I went through that process, and then I just put them in my God box, right? And then I open my God box once a year, and usually around my birthday, and, uh, you know, you read through the things you've thrown in there, and you think, that got resolved, that got resolved, that got resolved, he's gone, she's gone, you know, got the car, got the, you know, whatever it is. It, it, everything gets resolved, and if it doesn't, or it just becomes a non-issue. Or if I have to put it in for year two, game on, right? Let's do it again. But, um, but yeah, it all, it all started with that, finding that in the fourth column. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for your... Uh, how has your relationship changed uh, with your siblings, and do they have... If they haven't gotten recovery, have, do they, and they want to still bring up some maybe past trauma from your childhood, you know, do you deal with that, you know, when you're like, you've already gone through it? Wow. Man, that's a good question. I can't believe you asked that question. It's a particularly timely question. Um, I'm the only one in my family <clears throat> who's in 12-step recovery. I'm not the only one who qualifies. I'm not the only alcoholic in my family. Um, I'm going to leave some stuff out in case anybody in my family... I always imagine that after I lead one of these things, you know, there's a few nieces and nephews that I might, you know, might be soft touches I could get to listen. But um, my family is very affected by alcoholism. There's a big wedding coming up in a couple of weeks, and um, it's an open bar, and that's all my family is talking about, right? Like, oh, it's so expensive, open bar. For real, like, that's what they're talking about. And um, I, I'm, not, I'm not going. I'm not, I'm not flying back for that. Um, and it, it, it's there's just a lot of pain, and there is a lot of um, you have spoiled me here. I love that we have deep conversations. I love that, like I referenced, I could have a problem with a a, a, a dentist on a Monday, and somebody has a, a problem, despite the fact I haven't presented with a problem. And I love them both, and I love me. I love us through all of that. That kind of a thing could create years of breakage in my family. I had a sister who didn't talk to me for a quarter century for dumb stuff that I did when I was a kid. You know, the stuff you do, you play the records, you burn their incense, right? All that kind of stuff. And for, she seriously would not talk to me for a quarter century. She knew how to behave when we showed up at, you know, the, the family events. And the family events that we show up for are funerals and weddings, right? It's not like we have reunions or anything like that. But, um, and then it got resolved and there's definitely not time for that. But that's, that's the pain of alcoholism. That's the pathology, right? How it shows up. And um, there's, there's a lot of surface-driven conversation in my family. And again, you've spoiled me. I want to go deep here. And um, and if there's a problem, I want to be able to clean it up, and I want it to be a non-issue, right? Just you know, to sit across from somebody and say, "Hey, I'm sorry I said that," or that, "That was hurtful," or "Oh man, I can't believe I just lied. I said this, and this is actually what's the truth." I guess I was embarrassed to tell you that, you know, you know my agent dropped me or whatever. You know, I mean, it just—I love what we have done here, but there's a lot of conversation about weather and sports in my family, and I—I I love sports, and I. Love the weather app. I'm I'm all in, but I just I I, I want more. So um, 
I love them. I have uh, relationships with all of them. But, um, you know, some of the relationships are, we might talk once a year. It's that kind of a relationship, you know, and it's just, so there's a real sadness that I feel. Um, my parents are deceased. My oldest brother is deceased, died of diabetes, died young. He, he and I were really close. But, um, yeah, so I love them, and it, there's a real sadness. But I, um, I love them, and that's good, you know. It's real good. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you so much for me. Can you please talk about, you know, you, you talked a bit about being dishonest. Can you talk a bit about how your journey has been over the last decades of being a program uh, to be a more honest person? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question about you know that that uh, that journey of of honesty to dishonesty. Oh, wait a minute. Oops. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> dishonesty to honesty. Um, again, it's, so much of it was all just about. Well, it was keeping the, the pain in, right? I had to really keep a lid on the pain. So once I, I got here and I could get stuff written down on a four-step, what does that say? I don't have my glasses on. Five. Yeah. Um, so that was a big part of it, kind of feeling safe, getting away from that, that pain and that trauma. So there was a real measure of, I, I made a real jump toward honesty there when I could actually share what hurt, right? When I could come in a room and be vulnerable and listen and share and be part of a community, that was part of it. Um, things that showed up in um, four steps, you know, various things that I finally said out loud. And there was one thing that I had shared with uh, one sponsor, and I remember thinking I would never share. And I got, she just had the most beautiful response. You know, it's just such a holy thing to me when you're on a fifth step. I never had any pain or drama around four steps. It was always just so, I was so grateful to get stuff out of my head. So I think that was a big part of the jump toward honesty, just getting it out of my head and then sharing it with someone. And again, I never had any, um, I just didn't have any fear around that. I grew up where nobody was listening or paying attention to me. So the idea that somebody was going to give me their time and listen in the generous way that I've always experienced on these myriad fist steps I've done over the years, it just, that, that was a big thing. So I think that it was all part of it there. And then, um, my husband and I, we've been married 11 years. We had a 10-year engagement. And um, people would say, why? Why the long engagement? I'd say, well, I'm afraid. And they'd say, what are you afraid of? I'd say, what do you got? <laughs> We're afraid of all of it. So, you know, that was a big deal, like being present in a relationship with someone. And still, it's, it's still really wonderful and awful and all of those things. I mean, I, I think I just get it that it's it's. It, it's the gray area, you know. I, I'm learning to live in the gray. And um, I have uh, people that I can be honest with. I have people that I'm close to. I love everybody in 12-step programs. And, and I work if I don't like someone. Because I, my, I, I guess I knew that my parents loved me, but I didn't feel liked, you know. My dad didn't like that I was overweight. And I was the one who was the most like my mother. And because she was so troubled, she didn't like me. I felt not liked. So when I don't like someone, I actually dig deeper. 
because I know how it feels to not be liked. So I don't settle for the, well, we love everybody in Peru. You might, you know, you might not like everybody, but you'll love them. It's like, uh uh-uh. No, I gotta dig deeper. If I've got a problem with you, the problem is mine. I just, and I wanna explore that stuff because I, I just feel very, very, I'm very, very sensitive given what I'd experienced. And I just want to do whatever I can do to let people know that it's safe. So I think all of those things were all part of how it, it just became safe to, to be who I am, you know? Yeah. I'll tell you this quick story because I think we have time. So you'd asked about my siblings. So I got married on January 30th, 2011, and I still had three surviving siblings, and neither of my parents were alive. But nobody, and myriad uh, uh, nieces and nephews, uh, you know, college age kids, nobody from my family came to my wedding. Nobody. I had an aunt who, there had been a divorce and a scandal in my family, and it was a scandal. Um, So she was an aunt by marriage, and she lived out in Fontana. So she came. She'd been, you know, the divorce had happened decades ago, but she came. But nobody from my family came. Two of my siblings didn't even send the RSVP back. It's like, really? I mean, there's a stamp on the envelope. Check a box. Um, And on the day of my wedding, I, uh, I called all of my siblings. And I said, I know you're thinking about me. I know you couldn't be here, but I just want you to know I love you, and I know you love me, and I know you're thinking about me. And I remember my brother was like, oh, yeah, yup, thinking about you today. Like he hadn't even remembered, right? But I was so glad that I thought to reach out to them because you taught me to do that kind of stuff, to reach out to them. Because can you imagine about 12 hours later on the first night of my marriage on the honeymoon when I would have put two and two together that I hadn't heard from any of my siblings? Who's going to pay the price? My husband and me. That's how it was going to go. That's how I've lived most of my life. And I still sometimes do that. I don't catch them all. But you've really taught me, like, go deeper. If it hurts, go deeper. And if somebody hurt you, Feel your feelings, be present, find it in your body, love, self-soothe, right? Rock, cradle, rub, do those things, bless you. But, but go deeper, go underneath and find a place, right? Where you can hold and cradle so that we can cradle one another, right? Because I'll never, I'll never, whoever gets to the love first wins. One of my, our best couples therapists told my husband. Whoever gets to the love first wins. Bless you. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, so I want to win today. Just for today, I want to win. Until my husband doesn't put a napkin in his lap. And then <laughs> <laughs> it's all over. It's all over. Anyway, thanks. Thank you.